this morning to the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10. On this day, we consider the plight of the persecuted church around the globe. God has graciously brought us to Matthew 10 to consider a passage that is difficult. It's not a, it's not a passage that's difficult because of the sin in our own lives necessarily that it's going to confront or call out as some passages we turn to and we read it and think, wow, that's convicting. That just really shines the light upon my sin very clearly. But it's a passage that I believe is difficult because in many ways it's foreign to us. We gather here freely. We live in a a free country. We come and we worship of our own accord. We don't leave here today fearful of imprisonment or any type of persecution for simply gathering here. We don't fear any type of arrest or physical harm because we've gathered this morning. So the idea of of those things in our lives here is really foreign. And and that's not a, a ploy to make us feel guilty. It's just the simple reality that we need to acknowledge when we gather this morning. We look at a passage such as this. So the question then is, why is this important? Why is this a a passage that we need to gather and we need to consider and look at and and to be aware of and to study this morning? Well, the, the reality is that if persecution is not currently in our life now, which for the most part it's not, then it certainly could lurk ahead And when Jesus speaks this passage to the disciples, he's pointing them forward to tell them what would come, to tell them what they could expect. And so we too would be right to glean the same, to read this and understand that which we must be ready for. Many of you just got out of small group studying Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where you considered the fact and the truth that there's a time for everything, right? There's a time for giving birth, there's a time for dying. There's a time for everything under the sun. And God reigns supreme in the midst of that. And in our own lives, there is a time of peace, perhaps a time of gathering in freedom. And perhaps there will be a time of gathering with great opposition and persecution. And for that, we must be ready. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you, the eternal sovereign, mighty God of all creation. God, we recognize and we understand that, that, God, there is a time for everything. God, we live in a day and we live in a, in a land where we experience and we enjoy many freedoms. Certainly our country is not perfect. We know that well. But, God, we do thank you for the freedoms we have. God, I pray that we would be good stewards of that freedom. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to ready us for a day, whether it's here or whether it's somewhere that you call us to go, in which we may experience more severe opposition, perhaps the severest of all. God, would you steady our faith and would you prepare us by your word today, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning from Matthew 10, beginning in verse 16. We'll read until verse 25. Behold, 
I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of, our, of, of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of this household? You recall last week we looked at verses 1 through 15, and I, I told you as we got to the end of that passage that we would stop at, at verse 10, and we would consider 11 through 15 briefly today. And what, what Jesus was doing in 1 through 15 is he is sending the, the 12 disciples on a very specific mission. He's relaying to them what they should do and how they should go. In verses 11 through 15, he begins speaking to them about the reception they might could expect. Some would welcome them in, others would not welcome them. And that's what he means by determining those who are worthy or those who are unworthy. He simply means those who would be welcoming to the gospel or those who would not be welcoming to the gospel, those who would, who would not be open and hospitable to them coming in. And Jesus' instructions were simply in verse 14 to leave those who would not receive them and welcome them. Move on. Don't just continue there. Don't just sit and continue persisting when the gospel is scorned by those in front of you. You're to move on, to advance and take the gospel elsewhere. You might recall we studied Matthew 7, 6 when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says something similar. He makes a statement. We looked at it in further detail that day, but in Matthew 7, 6, he said, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We covered that passage. I, I share with you simply that, that the Lord is teaching his disciples, his followers, his people, that there are times where we don't just continue throwing the gospel out to those who continue to scorn it and to mock it and to deny it and even abuse it or manipulate it. At some point, it's time to move on. Jesus teaches the same thing to the disciples in chapter 10, verse 14, that there is a time to move on from those who would blatantly, even aggressively scorn and reject the gospel. We saw examples of that in Acts. Acts is always a good example to see the teaching of the Lord uh, worked out in the lives of the early disciples. But in Acts 13, to 51, the Jews in Antioch reject Paul and Silas, and it says that they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went on to Iconium. We see something similar in Acts 18, 5 to 6. The gospel was rejected and opposed by the Jews and in, in the synagogue. And so Paul says he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. 
From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. He moved on. It's a hard thing to consider, but we have to know when to stay, when to work hard for the gospel, and when to move on. It's an easy way, I think, maybe to, to relate this in, in our everyday just working is, I don't know if you've ever tried to till up a new spot of land, whether it's for a, a flower garden or a, a vegetable garden, but you get a tiller out, and, and tillers are wonderful crea- creations, especially if it's a front-time tiller. If you've ever tried to till up new ground in a front-time tiller, you know what, what happens. It's like that thing is like just all over the place, right? Jumping, bouncing, bouncing, but you know that the ground is hard and you can see progress, right? The ground is starting to get busted up. It's starting to dig under and you're starting to make progress and you keep on tilling, right? Even though it's difficult, you keep tilling. But have you ever had that moment where you're tilling, tilling, tilling? It's hard, it's bouncing, it's making progress, but all of a sudden it just hits a, just a solid piece of granite. You ever had that? And that tiller, boom! I mean, it's all over the place, and it's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter how long you sit there and you beat that piece of rock with a tiller, it's not going because it's just this big piece of granite. And it's time, brother, to move on at that point, right? We have to know as believers, as we're doing work for the gospel and advancing the gospel, there's a time where we have to have discernment to know that this is tough ground. There's opposition. It's difficult, but we keep going. We're seeing the Lord's work. We're seeing the Lord's blessing, and we keep on. And then there's times where it's as though we hit a piece of granite, and it's time to move on. It's the discernment we need as followers of Christ. Now, we come to verses 16 to 25. There's a transition here. I shared with you last week that, that this is a very specific mission that he gave to the 12 disciples in 1 through 15. In 16, there's a transition from the specific mission to the disciples to the broad mission, a broad uh, list of general instructions to all of Jesus' followers. The the parallel passages, if you look in, you don't have to turn there now, but if you look in Mark 6, 7 to 13 and Luke 9, 3 to 5, both of these passages tell of the sending of the twelve. But neither one of them include 16 to 25, these general instructions. They both have the sending of the 12, and that's all they do. And then Matthew here gives us the account of Jesus' general descriptors and instructions to disciples. I want to just point out to you, just by way of notes, you understand why we understand this shift to take place, several things that kind of describe that shift and help us to see that linguistically. The the first thing is that we see in verse 16, you remember how common it is in our study of Matthew when Jesus and and Matthew records Jesus saying, behold, and how that indicates a, a shift in thought. In Matthew's gospel, well, here you have the same thing. In verse 16, behold. And so it would signify a shift in thought, a shift in teaching, something new, new material. In verse 18, we're told that they will bear witness before the Gentiles, right? Now, who are they to bear witness before in verses 5 through 15? The house of Israel, right? They were supposed to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, now it's expanding to the Gentiles. Also in verse 18, they would be dragged before governors and kings, And this indicates a much broader scope than the the small towns that they were sent to throughout Galilee in verses 5 through 15. Now they will be in places or would be going to places in which governors and kings would be ruling. In verse 21 and then verses 34 to 39, we see that families are disrupted over the gospel message, entire families. And so we would see that as a broader scope than just, just these 12 disciples. In verse 22, we see that the end is in view. 
And this isn't just the end of a week journey, the end of a journey around Galilee into the small towns, but he's talking about the end as in the end. Persevere to the end, the end of your days, that day before that you stand before the Lord. There is a long-term view here in verse 22. And then also, throughout this passage, generic terms are used. A disciple, everyone, a person, in verse 24, 32, and 36. So we understand in verse 16 to 25, these instructions are very much intended for the whole of Jesus' followers. They are very much intended to give us wisdom and for us to understand and know as we consider the opposition that could be before us. What this section is going to show us is this, is that there are days in gospel ministry where the ground is very difficult. The ground is very difficult. If you read Acts, you do not get the impression that God always sends you to an easy task. So something being easy is not a sign of God's will or leading. God often sends the apostles into very difficult situations with much opposition. They're imprisoned, they're, they're beaten, they're ridiculed, spit upon, all because they're following God's will. They are going where God sent them. They're going into difficult situations and they keep going. They keep going. And that's what we are to do. In the midst of difficulty, we continue to till the ground. And I want to give you just six principles here. Six principles. We're going to look at six principles in 16 to 25 that we can glean. We consider the, the difficulty of meeting opposition. And then after that, I want to look at one promise that we cling to. So six principles and one promise today. Here's the first principle. One in verse 16, we see that we are to go as the people of God. So he says, well, I am sending you out as what? Sheep. Don't be afraid to talk. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, right? We are always called sheep. We're commonly, that's, we're just referred to as sheep. God's people are called sheep. We are not those sent out to wage war. We're not those coming to, to in, enact force upon unbelievers. We go as sheep. It's the same thing that Jesus will tell when he sends out the 72 in Luke 10. He sent out the 12, and then he sends out 72 again. When he sends out the 72, he says the same thing. He says that I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. What that means is as sheep, we can expect danger. We can expect opposition. We can expect difficulty. Now, this personally is a good reminder to me. Because I, I sometimes get into my thick skull that, I, that people should just always be for me and they should always be applauding me because I'm a Christian or I'm a pastor and that's just not necessarily the case. In, in fact, I, I really should ready myself and remind myself that I'm a sheep among wolves. That I shouldn't expect everyone to come around and, and just pat me on the back and say, oh, that's great, good job. I should be aware of the fact that I'm a sheep among wolves. Boyce, in his commentary, says that we cannot forget that we are, not, or we are sent not to overpower the wolves or destroy them, but we are sent to convert them. As sheep, we do not go to enact force and power. We go to convert them with the message of the gospel. The only weapon we wield is what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17. Now, how are we to go? 
If we were to go as God's people or sheep, what does he say? Verse 16. If we're to go as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, or maybe your translation could say shrewd as serpents and innocent or blameless as doves. Wisdom and innocence, wisdom and blamelessness are two necessary companions for the mission. We need to have both of those. We need to take both of them. We're to demonstrate wisdom. We're to demonstrate prudence in how we go, where we go, how we interact. We're to have wisdom. One commentator said it points to the need for careful thought when confronted with difficult situations. How do we think about that situation? How do we have discernment on whether we continue to work or whether we move on? How do we have discernment with how we interact with that individual? How do we have discernment in where we go and what we do? The question is important. Where might we need wisdom? I mean, we would need wisdom in in what we say and how we say it, even when we say it. We we need wisdom, wisdom to know when to listen and when to speak. There's times where we speak up and we stand bold. There's times where we listen and we ask questions and then we speak. We need wisdom to know that. We need wisdom to know when to stay, when to leave. We need wisdom to know how to steward our time, our resources, our relationships for the sake of the gospel. That wisdom, though, needs to have with it innocence. The two need to go hand in hand. Again, I found Boyce helpful. He says and notes that innocence is what sanctifies the disciples' call to be shrewd as serpents. We're not called to just be cunning, shrewd, wise, and manipulative. That's not the call. The call is to be wise, to show wisdom, but to do so with blamelessness, to be innocent in how we go about doing it. We're to be upright. We're to be blameless in our interactions with others. Paul Paul called the churches at Rome and Corinth to the same thing. You might just jot down Romans 16, 19. Paul said, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul said, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. It's the same thing. It's wisdom and innocence, important companions as we go out on our mission. We need to walk in wisdom. We need to strive to be upright in all that we do as we're on mission for God. The second principle we see here is that opposition may come in various forms. And we think about persecution, we think about opposition to our faith, we need to realize that it can come in different forms. We see three different forms here. We see legal, physical, and verbal opposition or persecution. Legal, physical, and verbal. In verse 17, we see legal persecution. It says that they will deliver you over to the courts. And then later in verse 17, we see physical, that you will be flogged in the synagogues. And then down in verse 25, we see it could be verbal, where they might malign you. They would malign those of his household. They maligned Christ. They would malign us. Now, I think we get these categories, don't we? Verbal persecution, verbal opposition is something that that we sometimes face. Sometimes someone may indeed malign you. They may, uh, they may make fun of you. They may ridicule you. They may laugh at you. They may sneer at you. They may slander you, right? They may spread gossip about you. They may spread lies about you. Those are things that we certainly face that I would say many of us in here would say, yeah, I had something like that happen simply because I was a Christian. Maybe it happens in your workplace. Maybe it happens in your school. That makes sense. We see that. Now, The legal opposition is something that for a long time in our land, we didn't really 
have to worry about. But now in the last 10 to 15 years, that's really rising, isn't it? You can trace it back before then. If you go back in our legal system, you can trace back important cases that started changing that. But especially in the last 10 or so years, you really see a, a, a stronger legal opposition to those who follow Christ and live out their faith, their faith in the public sphere. So we understand legal. Now, physical opposition is very real for our brothers and sisters that Pastor Mike prayed for earlier. Brothers and sisters around the globe who are in prison right now. They're not gathered with a bunch of people. They're not holding a copy of God's Word. They're probably sitting alone in a jail cell. And the Word they have is what they've memorized. The Word they have is what the person in the cell beside them memorized and shares with them. And they share back. That's the Word they have. The songs they sing are the songs they can remember. They're experiencing physical persecution. Some this morning would certainly be beaten. Some today would certainly lose their lives for the cause of Christ. And that's something that I don't know of here, but it could be down the road, and we must be ready. So we must know, secondly, that opposition will come in various forms. Third principle to glean is that persecution should lead to the proclamation of the gospel. Persecution should lead to the proclamation of the gospel. We see that there in verses 18 to 20. It says, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Delivered over for his sake, and he will be with us, and it is an opportunity to bear witness for him. There will be occasions in which the people of God stand before national and world leaders for Jesus' sake to bear witness. So trials before kings will become testimonies to the king of kings. And we'll have opportunities and instances when the rulers of the world we'll hear testimony of the ruler of the world. It brings to mind Paul in prison in Philippians chapter 1, right? In verses 12 to 13. Do you remember this? He's in in prison. And what does he share when he writes to the church at Philippi? He's writing in prison. And he writes and he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul bore witness in that moment. He bore testimony before leaders and rulers, those in power of God. In Acts 26, do you remember Acts 26? Paul stands before King Agrippa, right? He's brought before King Agrippa. Why? Because of Christ. And what does he say? He he shares his testimony. He tells of the gospel. He tells of what God had done in his life. And Agrippa looks at him. This is a a great moment. Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul's answer is great. Paul says, whether it be a short time or a long time, I would would to God that you, and not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Paul says, absolutely. (laughs) 
If it's a short time, if you're ready, let's do it. If it takes a little longer, I'm still here. I'm still going to tell you that the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ, that Christ is Lord, not you, right? He bears witness before the king. We must live ready for the moment. We must live knowing that every moment of opposition, of persecution, is an opportunity to bear witness of our Lord. We have to be ready for that. We have to be ready. We, we often speak of the, the blessing, right? The blessing of taking the gospel, the, the blessing of being given that responsibility to go and share the gospel. We talk about that. That it's not, a, it's not this burdensome obligation, but it's a blessing to be able to tell people about Christ. But we need to know that the blessing of being able to tell people about Christ may very well bring with it great difficulty, great opposition, and great persecution. And in those moments, may we remember that safety is not king. Jesus is king. We need to look to him and bear witness of him in those moments. The fourth principle we want to look at this morning is in verses 19 and 20, that God is with us. God is with us in those moments. Now, have you ever heard stories of the imprisoned or persecuted saints saying these powerful things in these moments, whether they were about to be executed or whether they, they, they were standing, they were in the middle of dying for their faith, and they utter these incredible testimonies, these cre- incredible statements of faith? Or you hear the one in prison who will not waver day in and day out for years and years and years and their faith holds fast. Have you ever heard those and, and just thought, what would I do? What would I say in that moment? If someone looks at me, what would my response be? What, what should I say? Like, what, what words would be best in those moments? But these verses give us assurance that don't worry about that. Don't be anxious about that. It is God who will lead you and give you what you are to say. It says, it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Your father will not forsake you. In that moment, in that trial, in that difficulty, it's not a moment where God says, well, you're, <laughs> you're on your own now. You've gotten yourself into this. You better get yourself out of it and figure out what you need to say. And we have the assurance here that in that moment, your Father is going to fill your mouth with words of truth and grace. Again, we, we see an example of this in Acts. We see in Acts 4, 1 through 12, we won't read the whole passage, but Peter and John are arrested. They're taken before the council. And we read this in, in verse 8. It says, then Peter, he's standing before the council and they question him, right? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he gives his testimony. In verse 13, you know what the response is? Verse 13, it says that they recognized Peter had been with Jesus. Why? Because he bore testimony, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon him and led him and showed him what to say. We're told it in Matthew 10. We see it in Acts. We can expect the same to be true in our lives as we faithfully follow Christ and meet opposition. The fifth principle we can glean is that we need to expect opposition in every sphere of life and by all sorts of people. Particularly verse 21. But in verse 17, he, he gives this generic warning, right? Beware of men. Just beware of people. Beware of men. They will come against you. They will oppose you. You need to be prepared to be delivered up by them before rulers and authorities. 
But perhaps most staggering is in verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Jesus is warning us that there may be a day when those we love the most may oppose us because of Christ and may do unthinkable things because of Christ. This will be fleshed out more in verse 34 to 39, so we'll come back to it in a few weeks. But we have to recognize that opposition could come from anywhere. Our final principle, number six, is that persecution is part of being a follower of Jesus. It's simply part of being a follower of Christ. In verse 24 to 25, we see Jesus teaching this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's the teaching that if Christ was persecuted, if he was opposed, why would we think anything less? In Matthew 9, 34, you remember the, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus is doing these mighty works, and the Pharisees go, oh, that's not of God, that's of Satan. They're accusing him of that. And so Jesus here refers back and says, listen, you, you remember just a while back I, when I did this, the Pharisees accused me of working by the power of Satan. If they're going to accuse me of that, then what do you think they're going to do to you? If I was maligned, do you really think that, they're ever, that you're just going to live and walk all through life and never be maligned? Like, why would it be a shock to us that people speak bad of us? Why would it be surprising that someone might slander us or malign us or spread lies about us? This is where, and I'll say this, we. I have in my notes, a big capital we, not you, but we. We need to get thicker skin as American Christians. We're so ready to be hurt and offended. We're so fragile, I think, at times. We're so ready to lash out if someone speaks poorly. How dare, I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they wouldn't just have glowing things to say about me because I'm a Christian. I can't believe they wouldn't just have glowing things to say about my church. If they would malign our Lord, would they not malign us? Do, do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? John 15, starting in verse 8. Or, I'm sorry, John 15, 18, starting in verse 18. If the, if the world hates me, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. We can't be surprised. When, if that day comes, we can't be surprised. We've been told. We've been told. So these six principles, I think, can be summarized in a very easy statement. The statement, the summary of these six principles is that the church is the witnessing suffering, saved bride of Christ. That's who we are. That's who we are as God's people. We are the, the, the witnessing, suffering, saved bride of Christ. 
You know what that means? That, that means that the world is not our friend. But what a friend we have in Jesus. It, it means that, that people everywhere, people from all spheres and all sorts of people may indeed oppose us, may oppose the church. But brothers and sisters, if God is for us, who can be against us? It, it means that there may be a day and there may be a day that we're delivered over to the courts. And in that day when we're delivered over to the courts, may we not forget that we have been justified by faith in Christ before the eternal, sovereign, mighty judge over all things. In that day, don't forget whose you are. There may be a day when you're commanded to bear witness for the crime of being a Christian. And in that day, may we be faithful to bear testimony of the one who has freed us from this enslavement to sin. There may be days when we're maligned for being a Christian or words of hatred and discouragement are spoken against you, to you. And in that day, may we remember that the blood of Christ speaks a better word for us. Those days may come. Those days will come. May we be ready. Now, those are six principles. Where I want to camp out the rest of our time together is this in verse 22. That there is a promise we must hold on to. There is a beautiful promise in verse 22. It says that you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But, but, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You're going to be hated. There, there's times we are going to experience some or all of these things. It's just going to be the testimony. We gather here on a Sunday and we go, you're not going to believe this happened. That is, it's crazy. And, and, we tear and we tell and we hear that. But the promise we have is that the one who endures to the end will be saved. That, that's my, my great hope. The, the thing I cling to when I think about this, when I think about persecution, listen, I'll be really honest with you. When I think about the things I read and hear, I think and I, I, I read of the things that the apostles go through in Acts, I have not experienced those things. And so just being quite honest with you and transparent with you, I, I sometimes think, God, how am I going to respond? In, in that moment, how am I going to respond? We, none of us really know how you're going to respond in that moment, Right? There's that fight or flight instinct that you, you in here who are military or your law enforcement, you know that well, that people respond differently and perhaps in different ways than they think they would respond when that moment comes upon them. And so I ask, God, how am I going to respond in that moment? I, I, I want to be like Polycarp. Do you remember the, the testimony of Polycarp in, in, in AD 155? He, he dies. He's probably one of the last martyrs that we know about who probably knew some of the apostles, and, and he's martyred for his faith. And, and before he's killed, he's 86 years old. He's about to be burnt. And he says this classic line. He says, they, they tell him to recant. They tell him to turn. He says, 86 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I, I want to say that. 
I, I want to be that guy, whether it's when I'm 45 or whether it's when I'm 85, that if they say recant or you're about to be burnt, we're about to light the stake at your feet and you will burn in excruciating pain, recant of your Lord. I want to be the one that says, no, my God has never betrayed me and I cannot betray him in this moment. I want to be that. I want to be like William Tyndale. I want to be like him as, as he's waiting execution by strangling. He's going to be strangled and they're going to burn his body. And in that moment, what does he do? He prays, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. I, I, I want to be like those guys. I, I want to be found faithful. I, I want to be the one who endures. We, we're called not to this, just a, a day of emotional, passionate, feeling-driven confession that we get all amped up and we get excited and we just go, oh, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. We love it. Woohoo! And then when the day of trial comes upon us, we can't bear it because it was just driven by emotions. We're called to be those who hold fast. We're called to be those who don't turn back because our faith and our confidence is not in a moment, it's not in a cord, it's not in a feeling, but it's in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're called to be those who endure. We're called to be those who continue firmly, hold out, and remain constant through any trial that may come. That's who we're called to be. True discipleship means walking steadfast through whatever trials come our way. I want to be found faithful at the end of my day. Whenever that day is, I want to be faithful. What does it mean? It means walking through the fire confident in the one who walks with you. I love Isaiah 43, 1-3. What a comforting Comforting word from the Lord. He says, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not burn and the, be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Oh, I want to be the one that endures. I want to be the one that clings to that promise. I want to be the one that remembers that he who endures the end will be saved. But I know, I know that there are times where my Lord looks at me just like he looked at the disciples and says, oh, you of little faith. There, there's times where I'm like the dad in Mark chapter 9. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I just know myself. And so here's the two questions that come to my mind, and I hope, I hope they're helpful to you. Two questions. If we're called to endure, we're called to cling to that promise, then the questions that come to mind is how, God, how can I know that I'm going to endure to the end? I want to endure. I want to be faithful. I want to persevere. I want to be standing there giving you glory and honor in that moment. How can I know, God? How can I know? Well, here's the first thing. Is that my confidence and endurance rest not in my strength, my faith, or my wisdom? My confidence and assurance rests in the fact that I have been saved by a mighty God who loves me and gave himself for me. My confidence is in the one who holds my faith fast, even when I'm thinking that it may fail. That's who my confidence is in. Why will I endure? Because it's not up to me, it's up to Christ. Listen to John 10. John 10, where Jesus talks about he is the good shepherd. We read this two weeks ago, and we looked at the end of Matthew 9, that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? 
And what does he say? He says, my sheep hear my voice. This is verse 27. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. He gives it to us and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand, he says. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My confidence rests in that, that there's no one mighty enough to pull me out of the Father's hand. I cling to him. I trust him. I've given my life to him, and he will save me to the end. This is the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 1. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 1, Paul starts his last letter right? This is, this is the last writing we have from the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. Death awaits him. And so he's writing a final letter to Timothy before he dies. And he writes this, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering. Paul's, Paul's writing in prison. He says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Now listen to what Paul says. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Why? Why, Paul? For I know whom I believed. And I'm convinced, convinced that he is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. <laughs> Paul, sitting in prison, says, join me. Join me in suffering for Christ, for the gospel. And I'm not ashamed for suffering because I know in whom I believed. It's not about me. It's not about all the ministry I've done. It's not about all the mission trips I've gone on. Paul says, I know in whom I believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard it. He is able to guard it until that day. He is able. That is why we will endure. Why will we, will we endure? Because our hope is not in ourselves. Our trust is in God. Our trust is in God. So how do I know? That's how I know. The second question I ask is, what promise then bolsters my faith? What promise strengthens my faith? You know what it is? Two simple words, eternal life. This life is not all there is. I'm not just living for today. I'm not just living for this world. I await an eternal inheritance that will be given to me and bestowed upon me in the presence of the King of Kings. I await eternal life. We see that all through Scripture. We're reminded to look ahead. Here at 1 Corinthians 15, where, where Paul writes, he says, if we have Christ in this life, or hope in this life only, we are to be pitied. We're to be most pitied of all. But in fact, Christ is raised from the dead. And he says, so in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We'll all be risen to life. In John 3, 36, we read, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You have it. It is secure. In James 1.12, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In Revelation 2.10, Jesus is writing to the church of Smyrna. He writes that letter to them, and he says this. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days 
you will have tribulation. Be faithful to the end. I will give unto, give you the crown of life. It's the same thing. Paul, Paul looks forward to that. He says, I'm being poured out, right? I'm being poured out. And what awaits him? The crown of righteousness. He looks ahead. We've been granted eternal life. The promise we have is that we will be saved. We will be saved. We don't fear the one who can harm the body. We serve the one who can save the soul. We are God's people. We endure to the end. The trials may be intense. Life may not look the way we thought it would look. If we endure to the end, we will be saved. We set our minds the same place Paul set his. In our mind and our heart, we say the same thing Paul did in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. He says, for these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us, <laughs> for us, not us for, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. As we, we look not to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're fleeting. Oh, but the things that are unseen is eternal. And so we remember in the midst of suffering that he has given unto us eternal life. We remember two great truths. How do we know we'll endure to the end? How can we have confidence that we will endure? Our mighty Savior holds us fast, and Christ is our hope in life and death. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge this morning that a lot of what we read in Matthew 10, we haven't yet experienced. But God, some of it we have. And God, much of it, not all of us have been experienced by brothers and sisters around the world at some point in time or the other, for many even right now. God, I pray that you would ready us, that you would plant your word deeply within our hearts and our minds, that we would know it and trust you deeply, that you would hold our faith fast even when we Fear it might fail. That God, you would remind us of the great promise that to he who endures to the end, we will be saved. So God, may we be those who rest in you, whose confidence is in you, O oh God. God, we worship you. This morning, as we close this time with these prayers and these reminders that you will hold us fast and that you are our hope in life and death. God, would you steady our souls and solidify these truths of your word, these songs in our soul. Strengthen our faith today, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.